Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the book of Genesis, chapter two. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. So, the creation of God. We discussed the, uh, the hexameron, which is the six days, hexa, six, six days of creating, and something really amazing happened on day six. Us, humans. God said, let us, plural, make man in our image. He's talking to the Trinity after our likeness and let them have dominion over everything. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them and God blessed them, told them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over everything. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. The only thing he said very good about. That was day six. And then today we started with day number seven of creation. And it goes like this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host, that's angels, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. And because on it, God rested from all his work, which he had done in creation. Wow. God must have been really, really super tired. I mean, he really made a lot of things. I mean, he must have been so tired. Can you imagine? The omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful God. On the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had done. He rested from all his work. He's really tuckered out. I mean, he can sit up and sleep on his throne like that, like some of you right here, right now. (laughs) He's exhausted. Does God get tired? No. You guys are so smart. Do creatures get tired? Oh my gosh, yes. Don't we though? We get so tired. And then we get cranky when we get tired, right? And even other creatures get tired. All God's creatures, created things, get tired. We can barely keep our eyes open. Coffee doesn't help. We're not machines. You can't just wind us up. You can't just change our batteries. I'm like 104% tired. And coffee's not helping. God is not tired. God is never tired. Then why day seven? It's figurative language. And we just talk about it real quickly. If you're an English major or, or you remember this in high school, what figurative language is because it's all through Genesis. There are similes, which are a comparison of two things where you use like or as, like this room is as hot as an oven. Or a hyperbole, it's an exaggeration. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Or a personification, it's giving a human characteristic to an object or an animal, like the tree danced in the wild. The trees of the field will clap their hands. Onomatopoeia, remember that? Because it's fun to say onomatopoeia. It's when a word makes a sound like a pop or a boom or a fizz. Alliteration, the repetition of the same beginning sound, seven snakes slithered slyly. 
and it kind of sounds like it, you know, a metaphor. There's metaphors in Genesis, a comparison of two things saying that if one thing is or was, then another is like this room is an oven. Well, no, it's not. That's figurative, but it feels like one. So Genesis uses figurative language. Remember that as you're studying. It's in catechism number 390. But God is resting from the work of creation, but God's not tired. It's a different kind of rest. He's wide awake. He's always awake. He's omnipotent. He's all-knowing. But he blessed the seventh day. He hallowed the seventh day. And God rested from all the work of creation on that day. And the Catechism at 337 says, Scripture presents the work of the Creator symbolically as a succession of six days of divine work concluded by the rest of the seventh day. The truths revealed by God for our salvation recognize the inner nature, the value, and the ordering of the whole of creation to the praise of God. That's built into us when God created us. Worship is inscribed in the order of creation, and it indicates the right order of human concerns. It's for our beatitude. It's for our happiness. To worship God, to have one day set aside to rest and to know he is God and we are not and to rest and to relax and to have leisure and to have family time and to recharge your batteries and to do spiritual reading and to read the Bible, maybe do your Bible questions. Oh no, that's work. Homework. Don't do homework. To keep the commandments is to correspond to the wisdom and the will of God as expressed in his work of creation. So it's important. God blessed day seven. He hallowed it. He sanctified it. He said, be holy as I, your Lord God Almighty, am holy. Now, some businesses close on Sunday. They're few and far between. But every Sunday, oh, I just hanker for a Chick-fil-A and then, you, and then, and then it's, it's, it's not open. Praise God. What a phenomenal witness that is to our culture, right? Or I want to do a craft project. I'll just run to Hobby Lobby quick and Sunday, ah, oh, they're not open on Sunday. Do you know that Hobby Lobby risks an estimated $100 million in sales this year alone by closing its stores on Sunday? Praise God. What a witness that is. Because our secular world would like to eradicate God, would like to eradicate a day of worship to the Almighty God, would like that not to occur. In fact, in the French Revolutionary uh, time, the, the French Revolutionary calendar was created and implemented uh, during the French Revolution by the French government at the time for 12 years. They went from a seven-day work week to a 10-day work week. Would you like that? Why? Why did they do that? It was a radical revolutionary government that wanted to erase the memory of Sabbath, of Sunday, of worship from the society of God. Let's just eradicate that. So you have 10 day weeks. So you have three weeks a month instead of four. And it's only three more days of labor, 27 days of labor versus 24 days of labor. Only three more days of labor your boss is getting out of you, but it reduces worship by 25% because there's four Sundays and one is gone in a month. Let's erase God. Let's eradicate God from society. So when given Sunday off, what do you suppose all the workers do at these places? Do you think all the workers use their Sunday to go attend worship services at their church? Probably not in our culture today, right? 
No, they don't. How many of us use Sunday to catch up on all the things we didn't get done on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? Guilty as charged. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. Oh, good, because I'm using it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. The Sabbath was uh, made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But how many of us have this figured out where day seven is not a problem for us because we've overcome it? No, day seven was created for man, for rest in God. Resting in God, resting in the faithfulness of God, standing on his promises, knowing he's always faithful, remembering that, eating from the tree of life, going to Eucharist to be revived, to have the medicine of immortality for your week ahead. Jesus rested in the Father. He'd go to a quiet place to pray often in the scriptures. We see he had to get away, go to solitude. But the Sabbath is a sign of God's eternal covenant with humanity. And I was thinking the Jewish Sabbath is from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. And what happened on that day, Jesus's final Sabbath? Sunset on Friday, twilight hour of sacrifice started at 3 p.m. Ah, the twilight sacrifice on that Sabbath till sunset on Saturday. He's put into the tomb. The rock is sealed. Everyone thinks it's over. And he is doing what? Harrowing Hades. He's harrowing Hades, doing the work of salvation, the work of redemption. He's vanquished Satan's head on the cross. Now he's, he's, he's conquering death. He's doing the work of redemption. And then he can enter rest. Then he can sit down once the work's done. And that will begin the eighth day. And the eighth day is the new creation. And the old creation of seven days is pointing to the new creation. And the order of creation is pointing to the order of redemption. See how these two doctrines go together? And the new creation surpasses that of the first creation. Day eight is Sunday. So God rested from the work of creation very good work. And then God again in the second person rested from the work of redemption. Very, very good work. And it's a new creation. And Hebrews 4 reminds us, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rest from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So we still need that. And Jesus pleaded with us to come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in him for your souls. Spiritual rest, physical rest, we need them both. Sabbath rest is about our eternal covenant with God. And so when we say rest in peace eternally, we really mean it. Resting in that beatific vision, you finally made it to the fullness of Shabbat Shalom peace. Okay, now we get another account of the creation today. The first one, Genesis 1, was this big cosmic overview, a sweeping panoramic view of God creating stars and moon and sun. And it's kind of like the big Google Earth. You, you get on this computer program and you see all these things, but then you can zoom down in right to your address, right to your driveway, right to that shingle on your roof that needs to be replaced, you know? So Genesis 1 is a great big panoramic view of creation. Genesis 2 will be more of a zooming in, a microscope, you 
you know, or a, a magnifying glass, a pinpoint view more of human anthropology. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. So we've gone from cosmic to this area now, but still there's no domestic things planted, no herbs, no plants, no man to, to garden, no plant, no herb, no man. But we're zooming in a little bit. A mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. A mist has droplets of water. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. He's made of material, matter, corporeal. The body is made of dust. Think about that. The Lord God formed man from dust of the ground. I love some of these images. God was forming man, it says. God was shaping. Some translations say God was fashioning man. From the dust of the earth, a creature like no other, because the Trinity had made man in their own image and in their own likeness. And the Lord God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. He didn't do that to the beasts. He also made them on day six, but he didn't do that to them. Breathe his own breath, the breath of God into man's nostrils. And several artworks show this. In this one, God's using like a breathing tube so he doesn't get Adam's germs, you know? <laughs> Adam's germs, no returns. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. All different representations. Beautiful. He's breathing a living soul, a living spirit into man. So we have the corporeal of the earth and the spirit of God, the soul. And man became a living being. Man became alive. A living being with a soul and a body. A, a, a living being with the ruha of the Holy Spirit, the breath of God in his very body. He became a living being made from dust. Remember, man, that you are dust and unto dust you shall return, but oh, you our beloved dust and the whole plan of salvation revolves around you and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden now we have an even specific place where God has planted a domesticated garden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed so we've gone from this big panorama to a pinpoint and to an actual location and out of the ground Okay, out of the ground again, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So this isn't just wild. This is more of a domesticated garden with good food. Trees that have great big apples or figs and whatever the Mediterranean fruits are. The tree of life was also there, God tells us, in the very center, in the midst of the garden. The tree of life. Ah, and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't ever forget there were two trees that we must know. One is in the middle of the garden, in the midst, the tree of life. And then there's also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're both very important and we'll learn more about them next week. But there was a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. One river that divided into four rivers. Hmm. And four is ordinals, north, south, east, west. This is the river of life. 
It's really the Holy Spirit in disguise. Like the tree of life is Jesus. The river of life is the Holy Spirit. The first one, the first name is Pishon. It flows to the whole land of Havilah where there's gold and the gold of the land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. Ooh, beautiful stones. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. And it's the one which flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, have you heard of some of these rivers? Because they're still there today, but they've been changed because of the flood. Noah's flood that's coming is going to change the course of these rivers. So we can't track it exactly, but they think it's in this area and it's called a very fertile crescent. But the Jews will tell you where it is. The Jews will tell you where the tree of life was. Jerusalem, the very top of the mountain where the Holy of Holies is, where the true presence of God is. They believe that is the midst of the garden on a high mountain was the tree of life. Interesting. And if you go to San Clemente in Rome, you can sit in front of this asp of creation. And this has both the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of redemption intermingled into one. And I could sit and look at it for hours. But the cross of Christ has crushed the head of Satan. There's a snake under the cross and there's a river flowing out into four rivers. I'll zoom in on it. The river of Eden branching off into four rivers and there's two stags drinking from the river. There they are. And that's Psalm 42 as a deer long for flowing streams oh my soul longs for thee my god my soul thirsts for god the living god when shall i come and behold the face of god because he's opened a way back to the father for us to come again and behold the face of god so the river of life flowing into four rivers the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to till it and keep it okay he's giving him work work is good. Work is inherently good. God's making him a gardener in the Garden of Eden to till it. That's work. To keep it. That's work. But guess what? There's no thorns or thistles yet. Any gardeners in here would love this garden. It would be a joy to garden and get these huge fruits and vegetables with no weeds and no, you know, watered by the river of life. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. And this is only the man because the woman hasn't been created yet. So only Adam is hearing this from God directly. The Lord God commanded the man. You may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, what? You shall die. And in the Hebrew, God is saying a double die. It's, the, it's a word that means die, die. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of it, you shall die, die a double death. And we'll talk about that next week. Remember that. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And out of the ground again, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air. The Lord brought them to the man to see what he, the man, would call them. What is God doing? God is making Adam a king of this creation, of this creation of, of Eden. He's letting him name the animals because Adam has dominion over them. He is to rule over them. He's the king of this new creation. God is the king of kings and lord of lords, but over this area, he's making Adam king. He's letting him name the creatures. Whatever the man called every living thing, that was its name. Oh, they all call you a giraffe. And I put a little crown on him because he's the king. He gets to name everything. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. Nothing. 
Name this, name that, name this, name that, name this, that. Mm. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, the Lord God took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Okay, Adam is created out of the ground, out of the dirt. But this next creature is not being created out of the dirt. This creature is being a rib, a bone of Adam is being taken from under his heart and his flesh is opened and gaping and there's still flesh on the bone and he's going to create out of this something called woman taken from man. Even the words work. Man is from woman is from man. It works in Hebrew also. The rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. They don't have names yet, either of them, just man and woman. And the Lord brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Yay, yay, yay. She's not a water buffalo. She's not a giraffe. It's woman. And I like her and we fit and she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And this is nothing about sexual intercourse yet. This is just, we go together like peanut butter and jelly. We, we, we are made for each other specifically by God in his image and in his likeness. And we're complement each other and we have different giftings, but we go together. We complete one another. It's beautiful. And the man said, at last it's bone of my bone and flesh of my blood. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now this is the very first typology in the Bible. And you might not have got it as you were doing a quick read, but they are one flesh. Bone of bone, flesh of flesh. They are one and the same. And she's pulled forth from his side, close to his heart. And she becomes a part of his body. What is that a typology for? Marriage, but even a deeper spiritual type, type of marriage. What's the ultimate marriage? The church and the bride of Christ. This is the typology of the cross. And it's already in chapter two of the Bible and they haven't even fallen yet. I do that to show you this is God's plan A. They haven't even had the fall yet. That's next week. Even before the fall, he's doing this typology thing where it's gonna be pulled from his side and you know who figured it out? St. Paul in Ephesians five. He said, oh, it's a great mystery, but I know what it is. I know what it is. I know what it is. It's a great mystery, but he's talking about Christ and his church. And he uses this exact same phrase from Genesis two, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Even before Proto-Evangelium, when's that? Genesis 3.15, right? The first gospel. Even before the first gospel, there's a typology for the cross that this is going to happen, that he's going to be speared in the side and water and blood. His divine mercy is going to gush out for all humanity. And the woman standing at the base of the cross who's getting splashed in the face with water and blood, his flesh, his fleshly elements, his fluids, his own body, his woman. He calls her woman, John, take this woman, the new Eve. I'm the new Adam. It's a great mystery. Paul will figure it out later. John, take her to Ephesus. And she is symbolic of the church. The church is Marian. She's a mother. She's a bride. She's a sister. And there she stood with the priesthood, John, 
and was washed clean with the water of baptism, although she was sinless, she too submits to that baptism from the cross, Eucharist, his blood. Even before the fall, God had a solution. It was his plan A all along. She is pulled from the side of Adam. The church is pulled from the side of the new Adam. Even before the fall, it's a great mystery. And she's the new ark of a new covenant. And Revelation 11 says, then God's temple, and Jesus said, I'm the temple in John 2. God's temple in heaven was open. The ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, an earthquake, heavy hail. What was the day of the cross like? There was an eclipse of the sun for three hours. We had one for three minutes or something, and we thought it was really great. Three hours of blackness from noon to three. There was an earthquake. The centurion who was there saw the earthquake. He was filled with awe. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. The temple curtain in all three synoptic gospels tore. It's a four inch thick curtain. It tore from the top to the bottom. The earth was quaking. Stones were splitting. Matthew 27. The temple, it's an earthquake. The temple, the, the Ark of the Covenant is there. It's a new covenant. It's being opened up. It's being washed by baptism of the blood of Christ. The saints knew it, like St. Bernard of Claveau when he wrote about the Song of Solomon. He knew that Mary is a garden locked. She's a virgin. She's a sister. She's a bride of Israel. She's a garden locked, a fountain sealed. And then the fountain of the living water, the Holy Spirit from the side of Christ is just washing her. The new covenant is consummated at the cross. The head of Satan is crushed at the cross. There's nuptial image from Genesis to Revelation, the very first book of the Bible to the very last book of the Bible. It's all nuptial. It's all bridal. My sister, my bride, she's the hinge pin. She's the daughter of Israel. And she's the bride of Christ. And she's the mother of the church. So therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh to leave and to cleave. Jesus must go back to the father. He must ascend back to the father. She'll come later. But Paul figured it out. He uses the exact same scripture because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery. And I mean it in reference to Christ and the church. The man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. Everything was right in the garden. Until you come back next week. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for this beautiful, beautiful poetic allegory. This is zoom in on creation of man and woman. This beautiful sacramentality of marriage, the one flesh union, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, complementarity of the sexes made in your image, male and female. We praise you, Lord God, for marriage tonight. We asked that it would be protected and defended by our bride, the church, and Jesus Christ, the perfect bridegroom, the perfect spouse, and that we might honor, if we're in a marriage, that we might honor our own husband or wife. And if we are divorced, Lord God, uh, our hearts are broken. And we ask for your healing love to flood us and to help us know you as our true spouse. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. That was part two of the book of Genesis, chapter two on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit seekingtruth.org.
www.sharonsdoran.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.